Welcome to Dark Archive, where we explore terrifying and chilling stories from the past. You are probably familiar with the term Red Scare. After World War II, fearing Soviet Union expansion, many Americans became concerned that communism would soon take over the world. Politicians, who were eager to exploit this fear, publicly and often with little evidence, accused individual government employees of communist leanings. Reputations, careers, and lives were destroyed by demagogues such as former Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy, who used a congressional committee to out communist and communist sympathizers working in government. This was done, however, less for national security reasons and more to advance their own political careers. A second scare of the same era has been slower to make its way into public consciousness, even though it lasted far longer and directly impacted many more lives. Beginning in the late 1940s and continuing throughout the 80s, thousands of gay and lesbian employees were fired or forced to resign from the federal workforce. Dubbed the Lavender Scare, this wave of repression sought to purge gays and lesbians from their federal careers. Under President Dwight Eisenhower's Executive Order 104550, the investigation, interrogation, and systematic removal of gays and lesbians became policy. The rationale for these measures were tenuous at best. The theory was that homosexuals working in the federal government posed a national security risk because of potential blackmail. Over the course of the next four decades, Five to 10,000 government employees lost their jobs due to this executive order. Unlike the Red Scare, the plan to remove gay and lesbian government employees was done quietly. The FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover, conducted secret investigations to identify and discreetly remove gay and lesbian employees. Lester Calloway Hunt was born July 8, 1892, in Isabel, Illinois. Lester grew up in a small, middle-class family, he was an excellent student and received recognition for his academic accomplishments as well as his athletic ability. In fact, after graduating high school, Lester played semi-pro baseball in Wyoming. Lester graduated from Illinois Wesleyan University and then worked as a railroad switchman to put himself through dental school at St. Louis University. After graduating in 1917, he moved to Lander, Wyoming and established a dental practice. It was here he met a young lady named Nethel Higby. The two began dating and were soon married. Shortly after the couple married, the United States entered World War I. Lester joined the U.S. Army Dental Corps as a lieutenant and served until 1919. After the war, Lester continued his dental practice, and the young couple decided to start a family. Daughter Elise was born on December 30, 1921, and their son, Lester Jr., who would be known as Buddy, was born in 1927. For a while, things went well for the young family, but in 1931, Buddy experienced problems with his legs that threatened to leave him crippled. The exact nature of Buddy's leg problems were not clear. What we do know is that the treatment of his issue required painful bone grafts. Lester, wanting to give his son a chance to live a normal life, agreed to be the donor. This resulted in multiple operations. These procedures improved Buddy's ability to walk, but resulted in leg problems for Lester Sr. that would impact him the rest of his life. After the surgeries, Lester could no longer stand for long periods of time. Soon it became clear he would be unable to continue his career as a dentist. Lester's statewide network of contacts, 
His pleasing personality and limitless energy inspired him to enter Wyoming politics on the rising tide of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Lester excelled in his new profession, and after several years in the state legislature, Lester was elected governor of Wyoming. After six years in the governor's mansion, Lester ran for U.S. Senate and won. Lester wasn't in his new job long before he had a run-in with fellow Senator Joe McCarthy. Lester did not approve of McCarthy's grandstanding in the Senate. He despised how McCarthy ruined people's lives through rumor and innuendo. The two quickly crossed swords. Disgusted with McCarthy's witch-hunting tactics, Hunt publicly branded him an opportunist, a liar, and a drunk. This was a brave political stance for a freshman senator of a very conservative state. Senator McCarthy at the time was a hero to those in the political right, and no one, including President Eisenhower, wanted to cross his path. saw McCarthy as a dangerous demagogue and said so publicly. For his part, McCarthy was incensed and privately vowed to get even with the freshman senator. In 1952, the Democratic Party held a one-seat majority in the United States Senate. Since Vice President Richard Nixon would hold a tie-breaking vote, netting one Senate seat in the 1954 election would give the Republican Party control of the upper chamber. The Republican National Committee looked for vulnerable Democratic senators to target in the 1954 midterm elections. Many in the Republican Party did not want to waste resources targeting Lester Hunt. Even though he was a liberal Democrat in a very conservative Republican state, he was very popular and was well-liked by his constituents. He had also worked across the aisle for several important pieces of legislation. One key Republican, however, wanted the RNC to go after Lester Hunt, and that was Republican Senator Joe McCarthy. Still bitter at Lester Hunt for calling out his tactics against government officials, McCarthy conspired with two of his Republican Senate colleagues to bring down Lester Hunt. It led to one of the most shameful chapters in American politics. In 1953, Buddy Hunt was a student at the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Buddy was passionate about social justice and civil rights. He planned for a career with the clergy or in social work. In early June, Lester Sr. invited his son to Washington, D.C. to spend some time with him before Buddy went on to Chicago where he was to complete a summer internship. On June 9, 1953, Buddy Hunt was arrested in Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C. for soliciting a male prostitute. The man he solicited turned out to be an undercover police officer. It was Buddy's first offense, so he was released on his own recognizance in order to stay out of the park. This is where the matter should have ended. Somehow the arrest made it to the desk of J. Edgar Hoover, who relayed the information to Republican Senator Henry Stiles Bridges of New Hampshire. Senator Bridges shared the information with fellow Republican Senators Herman Welker from Idaho and Joseph McCarthy. The Senators discussed ways to exploit the situation. Senator Bridges and Senator Welker met with Lester Hunt and laid their cards on the table. 
They threatened that if Senator Hunt did not immediately retire from the Senate and agree not to seek his seat in the 1954 election, they would see to it that his son was prosecuted and they would widely publicize his son's arrest. In a closely divided Senate, Hunt's resignation would have allowed Wyoming's Republican governor to appoint a Republican to fill the remainder of Hunt's term and to run as an incumbent in the 1954 election, possibly affecting the balance of power in the U.S. Senate in favor of Republicans. Initially, Lester Hunt balked at their attempt to blackmail and told the two senators to leave his office before he threw them out. Rebuffed, Senators Bridges and Welker then went to consult with Joseph McCarthy. It was decided they needed to turn up the heat on Senator Hunt. The Republican senators contacted Inspector Roy Blick of the Morals Division of the Washington, D.C. Police Department and threatened him with the loss of his job for failing to prosecute Buddy Hunt. Senator McCarthy went further. He said they had reason to believe that Lester Hunt paid a bribe to get Blick to drop the charges. This was, of course, not true, but McCarthy threatened to hold a televised hearing and call Blick as a witness. Inspector Blick soon relented and Buddy Hunt was prosecuted. Lester Hunt attended his son's trial. Buddy was found guilty of soliciting an undercover cop for sex and was fined $50. On the same day of his trial, the Washington Post published a story about the incident. A similar article appeared the next day in the New York Times. Despite these brief media accounts, the arrest and prosecution of Buddy Hunt was not widely publicized. Not to be deterred, Senators Bridges, Welker, and McCarthy threatened that if Senator Hunt ran for re-election, they would distribute 70,000 flyers in Wyoming publicizing Buddy's arrest, along with the phony bribe allegations. In December 1953, Hunt told Washington Post famed journalist Drew Pearson that he would not stand for re-election if the opposition used his son's arrest against him, fearing that the publicity would have a negative effect on his son's reputation and his wife's health. On June 8, 1954, Lester Hunt surprised supporters by announcing he would not seek a second Senate term. A few days later, on a quiet Saturday morning, Lester Hunt walked to his Senate office with a 22 caliber Winchester rifle barely concealed beneath his overcoat. Minutes later, Hunt shot himself in the head. And he died a few hours later. His death stunned both Washington and Wyoming. The official explanation was that Hunt had grown despondent over a health condition. It wasn't until much later that the truth of the shameful event came to light. Some believe that Joe McCarthy has blood on his hands. And that concludes our story. So what do you guys think? Well, clearly McCarthy was a pretty nasty guy. He ended up dying pretty young, too. So there is kind of karma with that. Karma. Yeah, but one of the one of the things about that is that it it also, when they made that kind of a law that order in the government it bled over into the private sector so they started getting rid of homosexuals too yeah i think it's uh like there's there's the two pieces of it right there's the red scare which was very public and um 
that was used as a, a self-promotion by Joe McCarthy. And then there was this um, executive order that there were in, 19, in the 1950s, homosexuality was seen as a uh, mental illness. And the fear was that should gay or lesbian lesbians hold office in in the, with federal government that they would be uh, susceptible to blackmail by a foreign government. And I think the uh, the executive order that President Eisenhower signed was um, to address that and to say if the government has reasons to believe that uh, some of their employees, especially the employees who are in more sensitive positions with the government, were gay or lesbian, that would be a reason for termination. The law actually stayed, uh, the executive order, uh, you know, executive order is simply uh, an order signed by the president and it's, it stays into the it's into effect until it's either put into law by an act of Congress or by a constitutional amendment, or if it's finally repealed. Over time, that executive order, the executive order, stay in effect until you know until the Obama administration. Well, it wasn't enforced, but it was weakened. Uh, in in the mid nineteen seventies, there was uh, civil uh, civil service uh, laws in place to uh, protect against some of the uh, discri- discrimination against gays and lesbians. There was uh, Bill Clinton; he repealed part of the law that dealt with um, uh, security clearances, and then finally it was repealed. Uh, entirely under the, uh, during the Obama administration, but still it was in effect for a long. I mean, we're talking about nineteen what nineteen fifty four, so it was in effect for you know fifty years. The only um, the you know the the only thing that uh, this was based upon was the fact that it made these employees susceptible to. Um, blackmail by a foreign government, of which in those 50 years, there was never evidence that one person was blackmailed over being gay or lesbian and working in the uh, working in the government. It's less known than, of course, the Red Scare, because the Red Scare was, you know, very public. And um, these hearings at MacArthur, you know, he's he stood up and gave a speech in which he he said that you know he had a he held up a sheet of paper and said you know I've got twenty uh, names of twenty three people in the State Department who are um, confirmed communist and in a time when you know during the Cold War at the peak of the Cold War in the fifties scared people to death and uh, there's no evidence that he had any. You know, he had any names. He never did name them, but he had these hearings that were very self-promoting. They continued, as Chuck said, he was a very um, miserable 
human being. He was an alcoholic. He he was interesting enough. There were a lot of rumors about his own sexuality, you know, and but he would have these hearings where he just run people's reputations by pulling him, you know, having him ordering up in front of these committees. And uh, people were scared to death because if they went before those committees and televised hearings, they would lose their jobs. They were, you know, they would, you know, they lose their reputations. He, I mean, it sounds it sounds like he he really was into projecting his, you know, what he felt onto other people, right? Well, I mean, there is that right that there might be this self loathing type of oh, it definitely uh, sounds like a self loather. Um. He worked very closely with um, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the uh, FBI, who, you know, his whose sexuality has also been questioned. McCarthy used it for, you know, self-promotion. A lot of people felt he was, you know, planning on running for president in 1956 or in 1960, soon after uh, Senator Hunt's suicide. McCarthy had held hearings on communists in the United States Army. And in the, uh, you know, and it, it, the president at the time was was uh, Dwight Eisenhower, of course, general, uh, leader, you know, head of the army in the, in the uh, Second World War. And he wouldn't even speak out against McCarthy because McCarthy was more popular than a sitting president of the United States for a while. But they, he accused members of the uh, uh, army hierarchy of being members of the Communist Party, which was, of course, bizarre, to say the least. And he attacked a young lawyer who was not part of any of the proceedings, but was had volunteered to be on uh, the staff of the attorneys defending um, these army personnel when he was uh, being interviewed to be on, to be uh, counsel for, for them, they were, he was asked whether or not uh, there was anything in his past that could be, um, uh, that, that could be used by McCarthy um, to discredit him. And he had mentioned that when he was a young attorney, he, he, had served on, uh, been a member of the Lawyers Guild, which was uh, seen later as a front for a, um, not a communist organization, but an organization that was considered that f- was communist friendly. So he was having, you know, he would um, he didn't he didn't join he didn't join the council he didn't join us uh, assistant council. And uh, had nothing to do with the committee, but somehow uh, McCarthy got wind of it. And then, of course, you have the, you know, the, the big moment on live television where McCarthy is going after this young attorney who isn't part of the proceedings. And then you have the lead attorney for, for those personnel in the army that they were investigating, uh, asking McCarthy not to further damage this young guy by talking about this issue and McCarthy wouldn't give it up. And he kind of self-destructs on national TV 
you know, you've probably maybe heard where he's called out, you know, have you no sense of decency, sir? Have you no There's a- sense of decency? That, um, that played out all live on TV. And it wasn't long after that, that his, his hearings that was, you know, kind of was must see TV. Um, you know, he couldn't get any press coverage at all on it. And he was censored by the Senate, uh, shortly after that. And, uh, later, you know, in three years later, he resigns from the Senate. He enters a treatment for his alcoholism. He was also a morphine addict as well. Yeah, he dies in 1957 of cirrhosis of the liver, although some believe it may have been actual suicide as well. So, it was, you know, he just crashed. His career just crashed not long after this suicide by Lester Hunt. Sen- uh, Senator Welker, uh, a year or two later, he came down with a brain tumor, so he died. And in 1961, which is what, seven years later, um, Stiles, the uh, senator, the other senator involved in this, uh, this plan to get uh, Hunt to resign, he, uh, he had a heart attack and died. So within seven years all the main characters were dead and it didn't come out. The story, uh, there were a few people who knew about it, but uh, Lester Hunt's wife didn't want to bring any shame to her family because to dig us up and to damage her son, buddy, who was just graduating college and starting a career in social work. So she didn't want this, you know, investigated or, brought to um, the public's attention. But ironically, um, Tammy Baldwin, who is the first openly lesbian senator, a member in the United States Senate, who is from Wisconsin, which she's she has uh, McCarthy's old seat, she's called for an investigation on this to clear the record and to if not uh, hold them, hold those senators that were involved in this to account, at least for the historical record to show that this was a, um, you know, that this did occur. You can go on YouTube and see the clip. It was Joseph Welch. It was a lead attorney and he knew what he, he knew what he was facing in the, in the red scare thing. And he knew that it was going to be contentious. It was going to be everything else. But he was truly surprised. And I think if you watch the clip on YouTube, you can see this guy kind of uh, kind of just like take a step back. It's like an emperor has no clothes moment. Uh, Mr. Welch, recommending either Mr. Fisher or anybody else as counsel for this committee. Uh, I will put on the record that, Mr. Chairman, the, Mr. Chairman the, news, the news story on that. Under these circumstances, I must myself have something approaching a personal privilege. Senator McCarthy, I did not know, Senator. Senator, sometimes you say, may I have your attention? 
May I have your attention? Now this time, sir, I want you to listen with both. Senator McCarthy, I think until this moment... Jim, when you get the news story, the effect of this man belongs to this communist organization... I will tell you that he belongs to it. The citations, uh, what are the citations showing that this was the legal arm of the Communist Party and the length of time that he belonged and the fact that he was recommended to Mr. Welch? I think that should be in the record. Senator, you won't need anything in the record when I finish telling you this. Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Fred Fisher is a young man who went to the Harvard Law School and came into my firm and is starting what looks to be a brilliant career with us. When I decided to work for this committee, I asked Jim St. Clair, who sits on my right, to be my first assistant. I said to Jim, pick somebody in the firm to work under you that you would like. He chose Fred Fisher, and they came down on an afternoon plane. That night, when we had taken a little stab at trying to see what the case is about, Fred Fisher and Jim St. Clair and I went to dinner together. I then said to these two young men, Boys, I don't know anything about you except I've always liked you. But if there's anything funny in the life of either one of you, that would hurt anybody in this case, you speak up quick. And Fred Fisher said, Mr. Welch, when I was in the law school, and for a period of months after, I belonged to the Lawyers Guild, as you have suggested, Senator. He went on to say, I am secretary of the Young Republicans League in Newton, with the son of Massachusetts governor. And I have the respect and admiration of my community, and I'm sure I have the respect and admiration of the 25 lawyers or so in Hale and Dole. And I said, Fred, I just don't think I'm going to ask you to work on the case. If I do one of these days, that will come out and go over national television, and it will just hurt like the Dickens. So, Senator, I asked him to go back to Boston. Little did I dream you could be so reckless and so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. It is true he is still with Hale and Dole. It is true that he will continue to be with Hale and Dole. It is, I regret to say, equally true that I fear he shall always bear a scar needlessly inflicted by you. If it were in my power to forgive you for your reckless cruelty, I would do so. That just shut everything down because people were like, what the hell? You can point to one moment yeah. that is someone's undoing. That was it. That and was it. TV was a new medium at the time. And, uh, like I said, he, it was must see TV. So everyone was watching that. 
interesting enough, McCarthy, the uh, a man who was on his staff, who he McCarthy claims he attacked this young lawyer because uh, Welch, uh, the attorney for uh, the army, was uh, uh, had disparaged his attorney, uh, someone working on his staff. His was that was Roy Cohn, mm-hmm. and if you don't know about Roy Cohn, uh, I can. You can I, best best um, I can you know, to give you an idea of what he was like. Um, he was uh, what uh, who Donald Trump says would be the perfect attorney when he hired the attorney general who was over overseeing the the attorney general was overseeing the Mueller investigation. Chuck, mm-hmm. um, someone can uh, look it up. But Trump says, "Where's my Roy Cohn?" Because he stepped and, down, he recused himself, kind of, didn't he? Yeah, and that when he did that, uh, Trump's response is, "Well, where's my Roy Cohen?" Well, Roy Cohen was lead lead counsel for McCarthy's committee. It's one of those few times when it, well, you can point Sessions, to one Jeff moment. Sessions, you know, was the attorney general. Jeff Sessions, that's who it is. Yes, Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, that's exactly right. But when uh, Jeff Sessions recused himself, Trump said, where is my Roy Cohn? So that gives you a kind of idea who the type of people. And, you know, it wasn't just limited to uh, Republicans on his committee. I mean, Bobby Kennedy was on that, was on McCarthy's committee. And he got a lot of heat later on from liberals for serving on that committee. But that was the type of person McCarthy was. It was a type of person uh, that uh, Senator Welker and Senator Stiles were. And it was very similar to what situation where we have now, where it's a very evenly divided Senate. And the um, deciding vote in the Senate is, in case of a tie, is the vice president. Well, at that point, Eisenhower was president. Richard Nixon was vice president. So on all uh, to, uh, you know any legislation that would be tied in the Senate, Nixon would had would have had the um, uh, tie breaking vote. Now, what? So what happens after this? After uh, Lester Hunt commits suicide, governor of Wyoming was a Republican, and he named another Republican to take Lester Hunt's seat giving them the control. So short term, you know, they get exactly what they want. They get control of the Senate, but only until the next election. And then another Democrat wins back that seat. So it swings back. But so in the end, I guess it didn't really make uh, a big difference in terms of the, uh, you know, of the, the makeup of the Senate. But you know, it's just funny when today we think of politics being so nasty and, you know. Yeah. And I think two things that, that struck me while you were while you were discussing that was one, I think you'd be hard pressed today for there to be a moment when someone would have a moment of clarity in the Senate and say, wow, up until this point, I really thought I was on your side. And now that this has happened. You know, I, I, I feel the other way. 
And you know, well, and someone- I think it's because I mean, you know, it's like everything else. They're, they're going where the where the public goes, right? So yeah, up to that point, I mean, you know, it was the this was in the early 1950s. It was after the Second World War when and the Soviet Union had most, uh, you know, had occupied most of Eastern Europe, and there was a real fear that uh, that we were going to have this confrontation with the Soviet Union and obviously there are people there that led to the fear of the enemy within that right. you know that maybe members of the own you know our own government was going to be involved in helping the Soviet Union first to get access to you know the making of the atomic bomb which of course does happen yeah, there was a real sense that you know it was, uh, sooner or later we're going to have this showdown with the Soviet Union. We just fought a world war, and we were going to have this showdown either with the Soviet Union or communist China or both. And people were scared, and so in the beginning, McCarthy was very popular. I mean, my mom, I remember my mom remembers you know it, and she said, "Well, you know." We just thought he, you know, that he was, he wasn't afraid to take on anybody. And we thought he was actually trying to do some good. Of course, later on, you know, everyone saw how he was, but until that moment, I don't think people saw that as clearly. So that, so that's my question is, well, and, and Tim, in your mind or, or, or Chuck, and I'd like to, you know, what your thought on it would, would be too. Was, was he putting that up as a boogeyman to where he knew it was bullshit? Or do you think in his mind he believed it, and that's why he was doing it? I think he. Well, I, I, um, I think he saw. First of all, you, the, I mean, this wasn't the first time it was done, right? There was the Alger Hiss controversy that happened a few years before that, when there were actually, and it's believed, a member Alger Hiss, a member of the um, State Department, had been in contact with uh, Soviet agents. So some of it was based on the truth, but there's never been no evidence that those 23 names that he, you know, he would go around and shake. I've got the names of, there's never been no evidence that any of that was real. Well, and, and the real irony to this, and this is where it really, it creates its own, you know, toxic, toxic environment. But the real danger is, is at that time, the KGB has since released archives and they were fairly deeply embedded in our uh, in our government. I mean, not in the elected official level, but they they had spies everywhere. And McCarthy didn't uncover a single spy. So this took us down a path where we thought, okay, he's the cure for this. He's going to fix this. And and when you get to McCarthy, McCarthy, you know, not to get real political, but, you know, when, when Trump ran the second time, it was really the first time the Republicans didn't put out a platform, right? There was just no right. platform. McCarthy was the same way. He, he had no real convictions or platform or ideas. His only leverage, his only thing that he was getting a mileage out of was this. And, you know, to kind so it of gave him power. put it in perspective, if 
and most people can remember 9-11, right? And then, and after 9-11, there was a great fear of terrorism and terrorism. We're going to have to do everything that we can do to protect ourselves from terrorism. And, you know, the, the Patriot Act was passed. Well, that was the kind of the same atmosphere in the 1950s was with, with uh, reference to the Cold War and the fear of communism. So he had an audience because it was a fear that people had. And, and although he never really, you know, was able to cite any real cases of, of communists uh, at the high levels of government, there was enough smoke to where people thought that they were fire. There was fire. Yeah. yeah, And, and he was taking advantage of it to, you know, for self-promotion. Yeah. Other than saying he was a conservative, he, he had no, he was not a popular man and he had no real political ideals Um, other than once he jumped on this, and, you know, he was a heavy drinker. I mean, you come up with sometimes really good ideas when you're drinking. So it's like, you know, I'm going to get reelected. I'm going to get those commies out of here. I remember jumping off my friend's roof in high school because I had, we had started drinking. So, yeah, those great ideas, they just flow sometimes. They really do. Buddy Hunt, uh, Buddy Hunt, which was Lester Hunt Jr., mm-hmm. uh, the young man who was uh, caught in uh, Lafayette. He ends up living in Chicago. Uh, he was a community organizer, I guess, before hmm. before Obama. He was the, the community uh, organizer, social worker. And then he just passed away in 2020, so not too long ago. Wow. And um, in there a long time. He had, uh, before he died, he had sent a letter to... I believe Loretta Lynch, who was the attorney general under Obama to request an investigation into, into his father's death, because he said, it is my understanding that my father's suicide, the reason for my father's suicide was uh, my arrest in, which is God, you know, it's a terrible thing to have to live with, but his, you know, his arrest there in Lafayette Park um, and the blackmail by these three senators. You know, back in the day, back in that time, obviously being gay was frowned upon. How would you like to be the cop that was the undercover cop, you know, when they're picking out duties and they say, you Tell a quick story. We were in Chicago and they had this like crazy street preacher who had his own karaoke machine <laughs> so he could blast out things across the whole city block. And he's pointing out people and he's like, you, you with the cigarette in your mouth, your body's a temple. You're going straight to hell. And then he points to these, this guy and young guy and young girl holding hands. And he's like, you two fornicators, fornicators, you're going straight to hell. Now I've got the twins and I'm walking with the twins. I'm holding their hands. This guy looks right at me, points at me and says, you homosexual. And I was like, what? I'm walking with twins, smoking a cigarette. I'm can I be the cigarette smoker or the fornicator or whatever? I don't know how he picked me as that. But anyway, to get to my point, 
that couldn't have been an easy job, even being a cop back in the day saying, hey, we want you to go out and solicit guys, you know, find guys to solicit you for sex. I mean, the whereas the Red Scare, right, was on there, public hearings, televised, all that. This was very like on the download. They there wasn't a lot. Yeah. There wasn't public hearings on it. You had no defense. Basically, if they had any reason to to believe that you were, you know, Jagger Hoover of famously, there was one instance. The probably the most famous person to get caught up in the highest level person to get caught up in this lavender scare was Walter Jenkins, and Walter Jenkins was a um, senior aide to Lyndon Johnson. He was his aide when he was in Congress uh, as a house in the house of representatives. He was his aide when he was a uh, Senator, when he was uh, Senate majority leader, when he was vice president. And then after uh, Kennedy was assassinated, when LBJ was president, Walter Jenkins, I mean, L- LBJ thought of uh, Walter Jenkins as his son. He never had son. He had, two daughters, but he thought of uh, Walter Jenkins as his son. And two weeks before the 1964 election, um, Walter Jenkins was caught at a YMCA in a YMCA a bathroom, men's room, having oral sex with another man. And, um, you know, it just, it stunned LBJ because like I said, he was, you know, he, he loved this guy. He loved him as a son and he knew he would have to turn, you know, cut him loose basically because, uh, the, the stigma attached to it. And it's, you know, right before an election and he, he calls in Jagger Hoover and Hoover gives him all the details of the arrest. And of course, as I said, Hoover's sexuality has been questioned a lot. Uh, and, um, LBJ asked um, Hoover, how could you tell if someone is gay or, 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 or homosexual? And he said, and, L- and uh, Hoover famously says, well, they walk funny. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the level of, is this ridiculous? They walk yeah, funny. Just, funny. Yeah. They walk funny. And, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this thing was on the books for a really long time. I mean, I, you know, I don't like the whole lavender scare either because being a spring person, I wear a lot of lavender and pink because it you know, just my skin tone. Yeah, I was trying to get the, the. Well, you're a fancy man, trying, Chuck, so you're going to be a little more fashionable. <laughs> I was trying than to the get find yeah, the, um, the source of that, how they, who named it that, but I, I wasn't able to locate it so anyone out there who knows let us know the uh the name the genesis of and i and i just thinking about that too and and you know i think chuck kind of mentioned this and and and, you know tim you said he asked how would you know but i mean people weren't out in the 50s right i mean it's not today i mean people aren't out with their you know, here, this is my boyfriend, my husband, you know, whatever the case is. So yeah, to, to try and quote unquote, prove someone's gay. So like you said, there were no hearings, there was nothing. So what they just, no, someone would have had, a suspicion. They had, no, they had no due process at all. So it's just, oh, Hey, I think, think, I think Jim yeah, it was is an gay. Allegation. It was an allegation. And 
you know, they're, they're told, you know, they may have been working for the government for 25 years and there's an allegation, you know, they're terminated. Career is over. Wow. That's who it. uh, Well, and if you think of really how kind of rudimentary the Stonewall riots were, that was 20 years later, more than 20 years later, 25 years later. Yeah, that was it was you know, before. So, and we certainly didn't. Yeah, you know, that was 1969. So there wasn't a period of great enlightenment. Right. You know, in 1969, it was not until. I mean, who are you going to go to? It's going to, you know, you don't, there's no due process involved. And what are you going to do? HR gonna, is not going to back you up. HR is not going to back you up. Nope. If you get an, uh, probably an attorney is not going to take your case. And then even if it do, if, if you find an attorney, it will take your case. You're just bringing more attention onto yourself. And it wasn't, uh, you know, it, like you said that it wasn't a period of time where people were enlightened. It was, you know, it's something if you, if you um, were gay or lesbian at the time, it's something you probably didn't. You did not advertise. Um, you didn't need to share right. with people for fear no. it, it would, you know. Well, you, I mean, just years later, I had, let's say I graduated in 82. So, you know, you get up into 85 around then. I had three friends die of AIDS and I had no idea they were gay. None whatsoever. Now they did come out as gay right before they died, but. Yeah, and, and that's, I'd known them that's my, their whole lives after this. Yeah. yeah, and they, you know, lived completely. I mean, I had a friend that had three kids. They were married and had three kids and finally, you know, left yeah. the wife and came out and said, you know, that's what people did. They just tried to. And and even further still. Tried to Even live. further down the line still. So my, my senior year of high school was, was 97, and there was one guy in our class who everyone suspected was gay and it was a huge deal everyone's like oh my god did you hear we think so and so might so even in 1997 it still wasn't an accepted thing now i think kids in high school it's not uncommon for kids to come out in high school right but i mean christ it's 2022 you know so how long has this whole thing taken a lot longer than it should Well, you know i have a son who's gay and who does not He's not ashamed of it, but he doesn't, um, you know, it's not one of the things he will tell you about himself. And the reason for that is he said, it, you know, it just becomes the overwhelming part of yeah. your identity in people's minds still. But no, I mean, you know, even, even now as enlightened as we are, we still kind of look at gay people as novelties or, you know, something, you know, something less than not quite yeah, normal, something less you know? than. Yeah, yeah, normal. Yeah. And I mean, thank God we're evolved to where we are, you know, to be at this place. But it had to be very difficult being gay or lesbian, mm-hmm. you know, 50 years ago, or 70 years ago. Well, Nina, you're between us. You're, you are between yeah. Timmy and I. Did you, in high school, did you run into people? I mean, did people... No, I was removed there from were that. there were some very good looking, well dressed boys that I thought were really cute that never dated, but I didn't put it together until much later. But there were nobody was out. Yeah, yeah, that that okay. really didn't exist. I mean, and you know, and 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 kind of, I mean, my, my very 
other than my wife, my very best friend in the world who lives in Iowa, um, is, is a gay man. And, and I love him dearly. That was a nice, nice disclaimer. (laughs) And, you know, I, I love him dearly. And we've had conversations about, cause he, he's had problems with his mom. He had problems with when he came out to her and, you know, and in this, this whole question of, and we've, we've talked at great length about, you know, people that still say, Hey, it's a choice. And, you know, and, and he said, why would anyone choose to live the kind of hell that I have to go through, through my family and my friends and coming out? And, you know, that if, if, it, if that doesn't answer it for you, I don't, I don't know what does, because why, why would anyone choose to go through that kind of just, you know, heartache and, I mean, he he lost many many friends after he came out, and no one should have to no no one should ever have to go through that, and and it's just so sad, and it's it just still says even today what what people are you know willing to throw away you know and just because of of what you know someone's sexual preference. Well, you can you can learn a lot from people because people you know I have, I have two gay children, and people have said to me before you know you've you handled that so well. And always what that really says to me or what makes me wonder is what kind what, what did you think of me before this? What kind of person did you think I was? Yeah. When people say, Oh, you handled that well, or, you know, you did a great job or what I'm, I always think what, what kind of caveman <laughs> did you think I was to start with? You Maybe know? you handled it well in comparison to how well, other yeah, I think, handled it. Well, those we talk about projection. Yeah, those in our generation, Chuck is, uh, yeah. No, that's yeah. what I mean. That's what I when I say things haven't changed as much because people my age will be like, "Oh, that's so great that you you know don't have problems with it." And I think your kid is just a straight up <laughs> asshole. You know, I mean, truly, and you know, my kid being gay is the least of my problems. You need to take a look at your kids. So, but again, I, I think that's some projecting because I think when someone says that to you, they're thinking, "Hey, if that had been me, I would have dealt with that in a much different way. I would have, you know, lost my shit or, God forbid, disowned them, you know, something like that." So when they say to you, "Hey, man, you really, you took that well," I mean, it's not like they're a fucking bank robber, you know? They're they're gay. Well, and and you know, we've moved it a step further to where. You know, you have people who are non-binary mm-hmm. and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a cultural expert, but what I think that a big part of that is, is a complete rejection of, of our, you know, people, my age, a, a rejection of the standards that we held and saying, you're not going to hold it, hold mm-hmm. me to that. I get to define myself. You don't get to define me. And it's, um, you know, it's a, a another step in a different yeah. direction a, or in that same direction as, you know, I define myself. You don't get to define right. me. Right. And I think too, a big thing with that. And of course this, this isn't, this isn't everybody, but I think a big thing I mean, I will say for me personally, you know, my first experience with someone who was gay was in college, right? Or, you know, and I think for most people, that's kind of maybe their first, their first experience with that, you know, so it's, it's getting out and it's, it's living life and it's experiencing new things and it's, 
getting out of your hometown and, and visiting other places where you where you're exposed to so many different lifestyles and and religions and 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 everything that comes with that you know but if you just stay in your little five mile radius of where you grew up and you never leave and nothing ever changes you know everything you see is going to be the same you know so when someone says to you oh well, you dealt with that so well well that guy that guy's never been anywhere or met anyone that's any different than what he fucking looks like right well, that, and that's kind of the other thing is I always wonder what makes you think I care about your opinion? <laughs> Why are you telling me that? What may, I mean, people who know me long enough know that I don't particularly care yeah. what your opinion is. Yeah. So you can share it with me, but there's about 10 people in the world that I care what their opinion is. And two of them are dogs. <laughs> so eight people. Well, and let, let me ask you that, Chuck, since, since you brought that up and, and, and you said, you know, you've had people say that to you. Does that change your opinion of them? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it changes my opinion of them because I think that they must think that I am just an asshole. Yeah, but I don't think that's the case. I think people, I think. I mean, Nina thinks you're an asshole, but that's for different I, reasons. Well, I mean, yeah, I, well, mean, I was an asshole, say but I mean, I, I think it's admirable. <laughs> and I think sometimes people are just saying it because they admire that about you. I, I think sometimes it's awkward for people to approach it. Um you know, we have we have every year at Christmas. It became a running joke that one one if one relative couldn't make it, I would tell Tanner. You know, I won't name him because we're on a podcast, but I would say, and just so you know, Tanner, he does not care at all that you're gay, <laughs> because every holiday he would tell Tanner that I don't care you're gay at all, buddy. Oh, they, they took it and a point to I tell always, Tanner. I always that. told yeah, Tanner. Yeah. He would make it a point. And I said, Tanner, you should tell him. And you know what? I love you despite the fact that you're drunk. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you're drunk. Oh, you're a drunk who has wasted his life. God damn. So. <laughs> That's right. Turn it around on him. T- completely turn it around. Yeah. Is there anything else we need to talk about with regard to the death of Senator Hunt? Tim, I enjoy I enjoyed that story. I really did. And I think the insight that, that you brought to the story, the color you brought to it was was excellent. So I and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, then I will end this saying thank you for listening to Dark Archive. Please hit your little subscribe button. Please leave a review saying that you think I'm the smart one. Um and if you don't think that, and if you would like to tell the truth, you can do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Just don't, don't make it all about what a great narrator Nina is because there's 10,000 reviews out there already that says that. So, but we appreciate you listening and we will be following up with another episode. So thank you very much. <laughs>